Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Guess what? We are finally back to Mark, and we're going to pick up kind of where we left. So today we're at Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, and I'm going to let Alan fill us in into where we are in Mark. Yeah, it's been a while, so we may not remember that before our journey through John 6, we actually left off in Mark 6 with Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, which ended with the rather harsh statement that the disciples were utterly astonished by Jesus walking on the water and the revelation that I am he, because, as Mark said, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And, of course, when Jesus arrives at Gennesaret, rather than a debate about the source of the true bread, we find Jesus surrounded by crowds who throng to him for healing. Now, in our lesson for today, we have a different debate about, between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And here they're specified as the Pharisees and some of the scribes mm-hmm. who had come from Jerusalem. Some folks saw that last phrase as, as questionable, that why would scribes come from Jerusalem? Uh, that is an interesting detail. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, the, the scribes would have been, they were, the scribes were Torah scholars. They were mm-hmm. experts in the study and interpretation of the law, and they would have been based in Jerusalem. And um, I, I think the only motivation they would have had to come to Galilee would have been to check Jesus out and to find something to use against them. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So what, um, tell us about what is actually going on here then in this debate. Well, this debate is about something that was fundamental to the Jewish faith, as we've talked about before and that is the the issue of differentiating between what is clean and unclean. And this is something that you find in, especially Leviticus and Numbers. These are, you know, and and it has to do with how does one enter into the presence of a Mm -hmm. holy God? And uh, in order to do so, one has to observe these distinctions. And, And this becomes really the structure of much of Judaism, the Judaism of Jesus' day, much of the Judaism of Jesus' Days about separating what is holy from what is unholy, right. mm-hmm. and um, and and by as well what is clean from what is unclean. I think the logical question then then who decides what what is clean <laughs> and unclean, right? How well, is that determined? And and and, and we we will get into that because that really is I think the broader issue, and that is that perhaps the debate really here is the question of authority, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that debate is one that's been perennial, right? I mean that's a that's a debate that we could be having right now you know who what what is one's authority when it comes to religious matters you know yeah yeah and i think it's boy this isn't that an interesting question even for today Mm -hmm. so this is kind of a this is a passage that i think you know when you read it you kind of read the surface level and you kind of even if some reason it's really hard to even contextualize it into kind of our modern ideas Mm -hmm. about 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 You get distracted by the washing concepts in there and things, right? Right, because that's just not something that we really... I mean, we have hygienic practices, right? But but we don't really see that as a part of our relationship to God. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So there's there's a lot more... This ends up having a lot of really depth in in Mm -hmm. theological questions, I think, um, that are really important about who are God's people and what does that mean. And so Well, and it and it comes down to who is God as and, well. Well, uh, absolutely, right? Yeah. So, what an in, what this is really actually a very interesting passage um, to jump into. So, okay, go ahead and tell us more about it. So, the conflict arose according to Mark when the Jewish leaders saw some of Jesus' disciples eating bread with unclean, that is unwashed hands. And the explanation follows then immediately that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze mm-hmm. kettles. And that's that's the New Revised Standard Version translation. And we're going to find that there's some issues with that translation. Okay. The first one has to do with the method of hand washing. Literally in the Greek, it's which means with the fist. So uh, um, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands with the fist. <laughs> so this is a very specific 
kind of hand washing, yes? Very what, likely, yeah. Is what we're guessing. It's, it's a ritualized kind of thing. Yeah, but how to translate with the fist is really uncertain here. And there have been various translations. Often, mm-hmm. wash the hands often, wash the hands diligently, properly, thoroughly, as in the new RSV, carefully, mm. in the proper way, in a particular way. These are some of the English Bible translations that are offered out there. You know, interestingly enough, Calvin does pick up on this as well. And while he doesn't try to give it a definition of what that is, he, he says, look, it's very specific. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, ref- it, it reflects ritual more than it does the actual Definitely. I um, think that's cleanliness true. aspect yeah, of it. I think right? that's true. Now, scholarly options include with the fist or up to the fist or up to the elbows oh, mm-hmm. or with cupped hands. And probably those those options reflect, you know, uh, insights from other texts that talk about the, the hand mm-hmm. washing and the rituals that, 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 that were actually practiced in that day. So now we have to understand, though, that, you know, I mean, here we're, we're, we're in this time when people have been saying we, we have to wash our hands thoroughly, right? right? I know, right. So our minds go there immediately. This is not about hygiene primarily because m- many of the ritual commandments of the Old Testament or or the Pharisaic tradition have no hygienic value whatsoever. Uh, but rather the strict observance of clean and unclean was a ritual practice, and which mm-hmm. means it was related to what they saw as the proper recognition of God's presence with his people and therefore the proper conduct in order to mm-hmm. um, uh, acknowledge that presence. Basically, their concept of, of holiness was one that was ritual, and, and therefore right. they were to be a holy people by observing these distinctions. Right, right. Um, um, so it was about recognizing the presence of God with his people. It was about recognizing their separation to him as a holy people mm-hmm. out of all the nations. Now... You know, in in the text it says all the Jews do this, and of course, this level of attention to cleanliness is very likely true of the Pharisees and the scribes. So, the, just put this in context: the scribes were the ones who were devoted to the interpretation of the law. Pharisees were the ones who were devoted to their teachings and to their interpretations, and who sort of almost obsessive tried to obsessively maintain them in in mm-hmm. every aspect of daily life. So it's, it's very likely that they're the ones who, who um, took their level of attention to cleanness and uncleanness to this level. But um, it's unlikely that all the Jews practiced it. In fact, they themselves criticized the people known as the Am Haaretz, which is literally the people of the land, mm-hmm. uh, the common people, for yes. not strictly adhering yes. to their standards of ritual mm-hmm. purity. Mm-hmm. And Josephus tells us that the Sadducees didn't follow the traditions That's observed fantastic. by the Pharisees. That's a fantastic nugget. So you've got, you've got, you've got even within Judaism, you've got this sort of tug of war about religious authority because you know with with the Pharisees and the scribes, their authority is the Torah right. and the teachings within the Torah. With the Sadducees, their authority is the temple and the sacrificial mm-hmm. system, and and, and you've got these kind of competing authorities even within the Judaism of Jesus' day. Yeah, very, very interesting. And of course, I think all of it recognizes some kind of hierarchy that's not necessarily from God. I mean, they're recognizing some kind of, of human-based um, well, identity. And, and that's essentially what Jesus is going to exactly. say to them. He's going to come along. He's going to say, both of you, both of you folks are both wrong. Both are wrong. Both <laughs> are wrong. You are missing the point. You're missing the mm-hmm. point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also another part of this is that the new RSV translates Mark 7, 4, they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. Now, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standish Version, and the NIV simply translate this as unless they wash, which is a literal translation of the Greek, fairly. Mm-hmm. The American Standard Version, the Common English Bible, New American Standard, New Century Version, and the Revised Standard Version have bathed themselves, mm-hmm. which is a fair reflection of the verb. It's baptizontai, which right. is the verb baptizo, right? Right, right, right. So the, and, and we do know that the practice of bathing as a result of coming in contact with an unclean person is found in Leviticus, mm-hmm. and it was known to be practiced at that time. In fact, the members of the Qumran community ritually bathed several times a day wow. in order to uh, maintain their, their ritual purity. Yeah. So here you have, here you have sort of the Pharisees taken to the extreme. I, mm-hmm. when, when I, when I, when I studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, I was, I was just, I've always been amused. The folks at Qumran spoke of the seekers after smooth things, which probably referred to the Pharisees. 
<laughs> so you know, oh, you know, it's like liberal and conservative. It depends on your perspective. From the perspective of 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 the New Testament, the Pharisees were these rigid legalists. From right. the perspective of Qumran, they were the seekers after smooth things. Oh, they were the they were the lax, the, the lax ones, the, 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 the slackers. But again, we talk about Qumran. You're talking about a, a separatist society. Yes, you're indeed. talking about people that are looking at everybody else and saying, "Oh my gosh, they are." Com- they're just they're all in the world and they and, intentionally and so, left jerusalem and, and went to Qumran because exactly. they thought that the whole system was corrupt exactly so yeah. that's uh i mean yes you're right that's a really interesting observation um to make <laughs> right so as a result the jewish leaders challenged jesus and so once we we once we get through sort of the the mark's gospel's explanation of why this was a problem then the jewish leaders challenged jesus on this matter why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat bread with unclean hands i think it's important it's interesting to note that for them the problem was they're not following the tradition of the elders right that I, I that's right there and i i picked up on that when i read it right away it's like the tradition of the elders like yeah. not what god is demanding and not what but the tradition of the elders well and but it's not quite that simple actually in the judaism of the day the basis for authoritative <laughs> religious teaching was both the torah right as well as the other writings of scriptures but also the tradition of the elders which most I think even Jewish scholars of today would say that constituted the teachers, uh, the teachings of the earliest rabbis that were handed out orally, orally. until they were compiled okay. in the Mishnah. And this was a process that was at the very beginning stages in the first century and was completed about uh, about 200 A.D. Now, however, strictly speaking, the Mishnah itself says that this oral tradition came from Moses. Uh-huh. From the 70 elders who saw God's presence on the right. mountain with him, from Ezra, from the prophets. So, so the idea was that God revealed to Moses the written Torah, mm-hmm. and, but God also revealed to Moses and to the elders and to the others this oral tradition, mm-hmm. this oral Torah that had just as much authority and perhaps in some cases more authority because for them, they they use the language of building a fence around the law. So the tradition right. was, was meant to, the idea was if you build a fence around the wall, if you don't cross the fence, you're not going to break the law. Right. So it was like being extra careful you know, it's mm-hmm. like going five miles under the speed limit or something right, to make sure you right. don't get a speeding ticket. <laughs> right. So the oral law was was for, for the scribes and the Pharisees just as authoritative, just if not perhaps more so than the written law. Than the written law, and, all and, coming from God. Right. And, and, and when you look at it, actually, if you study the oral law, you find that, you know, it was really probably the, the result of their process of interpreting the written law. I mean, and, and this process is still going on today in Judaism mm, right. and, and as well in our circles to some extent. But, I mean, it, it's a fascinating study. I mean, because you have the Torah and then you have the comments of the rabbis, which are codified in the Mishnah about AD 200. And then you have further comments that are codified around 700 AD in the Talmud. And but then, I mean, you have this ongoing living dialogue going on with yes, Judaism yes, still today. Right, right. So that's kind of what what where where it all came from was this uh, pr- process of interpreting the written law. And at times, the oral law represented a deepening of the ethical insights of the Torah. And at times, it was just basically an effort to apply the law to concrete, specific mm-hmm. situations. Like, I mean, we're all familiar with the uh, with the with the with the. Uh, 622 ways to to avoid breaking the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I, you know, as you're describing this, it, 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 I, I keep thinking of like, and I apologize, Occam's razor, you know, the simplest way. Mm. And, and I keep thinking of the debate all around what the law is and means, and yet kind of getting away from mm. the focus on the, the purpose of the law. Well, yeah, Jesus cuts through it with a razor. Exactly. He says it's about loving God and loving your neighbor, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so I keep thinking, I just keep thinking of the complexity that involves with that, and mm. yet the simplicity that Jesus will call them to. But I think it, what I like about this discussion is it's really easy when you read this to be exceedingly critical of these folks. Mm. And yet I think your explanation says, well, this is actually really a deep process and that they 
may I mean I, the crit- criticism may not be fair because they're they're really involved in doing what's right I think they're, that is their intent you know exactly. their intent is to keep the law exactly and, and to honor God in doing so yeah and and you know I think I think what had happened was that they got so caught up in that that they began to miss the point you know mm-hmm. they missed the forest for the trees yeah so to speak. yeah they, they they lost sight of God in the midst of all of their ritual observances yeah which can happen happens to the today, best of us. <laughs> as Calvin's going to tell us happens as well, right? Yeah, That's right. And, and when we get there. So I, I do think I, I do think it's important and I've always tried to stress, you know, we, we need to understand the intent mm-hmm. of what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing in their oral tradition. Um, we, we may still side with Jesus, but right. we, we still need to understand what was their intent. Right, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and it, I think it also says really all that was going, you know, wrong which wasn't intentionally wrong necessarily but but had lost focus they yeah. meant well yeah 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 i used to say you got to give them an e for effort yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah so then jesus responds with a challenge of his own he says isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far mm-hmm. from me in vain do they worship me teaching human precepts as doctrines and this is a quotation from isaiah twenty nine thirteen in the septuagint now it's unclear i think to me whether jesus used the verb prophetuo in terms of spoke god's message or in terms of predicted, prophesied. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's important for us to re- remember that that prophecy was first and foremost the declaration of God's word. Right. And and on, only in a secondary sense did it have a predictive element mm-hmm. to it. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to, to, to think that um, Jesus was reading this as a prediction of the Pharisees to apply this, for him to apply this text to the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, uh, which was his main criticism of them. If you, as you find, you know, when he calls them hypocrites, this is the main criticism that runs throughout the gospel tradition, especially in the synoptic gospels, mm-hmm. um, that, that they, you know, and, and it's, I think it's important to note that Jesus doesn't necessarily criticize everything they right, taught. right. But he criticized them because they did not practice what they taught. He even says in, in Matthew 23, do what they tell you, but don't do what they say. Because, I mean, right. do what they tell you, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. Right, right. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. I, I, as, a, as, as I process that, I, I wonder if indeed because their conclusions about what they're saying, are, because they're, they're not focused on the right the right things in the first place well you know i mean the 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 oral tradition uh, like so the various ways of of refraining from breaking the sabbath law these were means to an end the end was to keep the commandment and thus to honor mm-hmm. god but it seems that the that the means became the end and they replaced the ultimate end so to speak i think in from jesus perspective mm-hmm. So okay. his criticism is explicit. He says, he turns it back on him. He right, says, you right. abandon the commandment of God to hold a human tradition. And um, that's a pretty, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. if you can imagine, you know, going to a, a meeting of all the top religious leaders in the country and saying, you know, you, you, you're so caught up with your own religious tradition that you can't even, you, you don't, you've forgotten God. That's a, that's a, Pretty serious accusation. Well, of course, as we know, that is really what the reformers accuse the Roman Catholics of. Of course, yes. of course. And, you know, I mean, there are some people today who will, um, some of the folks who've gone away from traditional churches will say, you know, the church yep. is, has nothing for me. I'm going to go find God somewhere else. Right. Uh, yeah. And right. even, I mean, even even people who are in seminary, you know, they're thinking, you know, I'm going to go find, I'm finding a way to serve God outside the church because the church right. is dead. Right, yeah, yeah, that we find that. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but I think in order to understand what he's doing here, we have to go beyond the boundaries of the lectionary. The mm-hmm. lectionary skips Mark seven nine. Yeah, and and that's important. And I when I was reading this too, to make sense of the arguments going on here, you, you've got to read this part, this nine to thirteen. It yep. be, otherwise it doesn't it doesn't right. hold together. I'm disappointed they took it out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what they were trying to for because the theology has to come with this in it, yeah. I think, to make yeah. sense. Yeah, I think they made a mistake in leaving this out. And, you know, I guess in fairness to them, um, this may have been a separate episode in Mark's tradition, um, but it very naturally, very logically explains mm-hmm. this issue and the debate at hand. 
And so, uh, in fact, in verse, in verse 9, Jesus elaborates on his original criticism. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So, you know, the, verses 9 through 13 may have been a separate uh, episode um, uh, in the gospel tradition, but they go together very well, and, they, and, and mm-hmm. 9 through 13 explains what he's doing here. And so here he refers to a specific tradition. It was a tradition of declaring one's financial resources to be korban, which involved a solemn and irrevocable vow dedicating a piece of property or one's possessions to God to be fulfilled at death when the property would be transferred to the temple treasury. However, apparently they retained possession of the property until death. So it was something like a charitable trust. Mm -hmm. But, But the problem Jesus saw in that was you know, that in his mind, at least, the commandment to uh, honor your father and mother included the obligation to care for your parents right. in their old age. And so, in effect, basically, they were, by, 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 by declaring their resources to be korban, they were able to hold on to all the resources and use them for themselves. Right. But... But basically, they were denying their parents the care that they needed. Right. And so it basically says they violated right. one of the Ten Commandments by right. practicing their tradition. So, you know, right. in his mind, it's what, where, where do we really want to put our emphasis here? Do we want to emphasize the tradition or do we want to emphasize the commandments? And we have to understand that, you know, the Torah was considered to be the Word of God. Right. And the epitome of the Word of God was found in the Ten Commandments. Exactly. So, I mean, Jesus' argument here is it hits straight to the issue of religious authority. Authority. Uh, Yes, and that's what's coming to my mind there, and uh, because this is such a huge part in in our practice of faith today, right? Sure. And it's it's I I hear all these people, but but I do all these all these nice things, but but their focus is off, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I keep thinking of that in terms of 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 what what is the core of your what is the basis of why you act are you acting um are you acting because you're called by god to act in this way or are you acting out of selfish reasons and mm-hmm. that makes a difference yeah, yeah it does and we talked about that before you know are you are you seeking justice because you're angry or are you seeking justice because it is what god wants for people mm-hmm. it's know? a it's an interesting yeah interesting yeah. discussion yeah. okay so um I think it's important to note that he introduces the commandment with Moses says and contrasts it by introducing their tradition with but you say. And that uh, there, there there we see the whole issue of religious authority just sort of in a nutshell, you know. Moses Moses says honor your father and mother. You say, you know, a person can take this religious vow and avoid mm, right. care, the, the, the responsibility of caring for aging parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Jesus concludes his critique with, and you do many things like this. Yes. <laughs> Love that. Now, I think it's important to note, all right, look, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were viewed very negatively in Mark's gospel. Yes, yes. In truth, I would imagine that they would argue that their practice was a matter of honoring God, and they would not concede the point that they were violating the commandment right, to honor right. their parents. But I think from Jesus' perspective, this would fall under the category of seeking to remove the speck from I someone agree. else's eye I while agree. there was a log yeah. on their own. And it was a matter of what's more important. You know, to, to, so, so, you know, you could see somebody in a moment of religious fervor saying, I'm going to take a vow of Corban, I'm going to dedicate all of my property to God. Right. And I, I, when I die, it's all going to go to the temple. Right. A- and you could see that as a moment of, of religious devotion. Right. And, and yet, you know, when your aging parents uh, need help, you know, and you say, well, no, sorry, uh, I can't do anything about it because all this belongs to God, even though you're benefiting from it still. Right. You know, that, that's, uh, there, there's something wrong there with that picture. Right. And, exactly. and, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're focusing, you're, your focus is out of whack, you know, you're just missing it. Yeah, it's exactly. A, you're missing and, the point. And I think, you know, when we think about even our own our own lives, we often find ourselves in those situations, right? Sure. And I know we can talk about that later, but but thinking in the context of when you really think you're doing the right thing and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, but what I've done mm-hmm. is actually ended up hurting people, you sure. know? And so I, I think it's always that, always that balance. It's always, it's always keeping your focus on God. And, and, and of course, that's why worship is such an important, important element, yep. keeping us yep. focused in. Yep. So yeah, very, very interesting. Well, okay, well, let's keep going. 
Um, uh, because we're going to end up returning to our lectionary passage. We do. <laughs> uh, we return to the lectionary passage in verses 14 and 15. Here Jesus addresses the question of ritual cleanness directly. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. And again, the language that the new RSV uses in terms of defilement is the language of clean and unclean. That's mm-hmm. the language in the Greek New Testament. Right. So Jesus is saying that it was not foods, it was not contact with certain substances or even certain bodily functions that rendered a person unclean. Mm-hmm. And you can find the references to all of this right. primarily in Leviticus and Numbers. But rather, true uncleanness was ethical and spiritual in nature mm-hmm. and moral in nature. And, and that really is in the, in the intent of Mark 7, 17 through 20, which is also left out of the lectionary text. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then we go into this, this other section that the, that the lectionary leaves out. And in this section, the disciples asked him about the parable. And that might seem strange because we might not see this as a it's parable. A parable. Right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I know. I, that's, I, I, in fact, I did that. I, I was like, that's a, okay, a parable. Hmm, okay. But I think we have to understand that the word parabole had a broader meaning than, than parable as we understand it. We understand parable as a story. Right, right. But a parable could be a sort of a, an aphorism right. or a particularly pithy statement like what right. we have here. I think it's important to see that, that the, Jesus remarks again that the disciples are senseless or without understanding, and this contrasts Jesus' earlier call, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Right? So you've mm-hmm. got this... Jesus calling them to understand, but the disciples are without understanding. They're not understanding them. You know, the the disciples not getting it again. And And once again, Mark's gospel does not fail to point that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, here it may be a literary device because it gives Jesus the opportunity to explain further what he means. Yes, true. And he says in verses 18 and 19, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? (laughs) So in other words, external matters of food do not render a person unclean, which would exclude that person from God's right, presence. That, right. That's J- Jesus says that's not the proper take on and, holiness, that's, and that's a huge statement too. As I'm it thinking is. about all the unclean people that Jesus is going to heal, mm-hmm. um, and finding them worthy of worthy of, of being in God's presence, right? So, what a different space than than what that that kind of Jewish tradition yeah. is. Jesus says it's you know these these matters do not render a person unclean they do not separate a person from God's presence mm-hmm. they do not constitute um, a violation of holiness mm. yeah. yeah and so you know here Mark's gospel contributes one of several narrative asides that we find in that gospel to the effect that Jesus declared all foods clean yep. this, this is this is yep. the interpretation of, of the evangelist you have this observation. Right. Jesus declared all foods clean. I think it goes beyond that. It wasn't just I, foods. I agree. It I goes mean, beyond I th- that. I think basically Jesus was saying, you know, that the ritual code was really irrelevant. <laughs> basically, Jesus is undercutting the whole foundation exactly. for the piety of the Pharisees and the scribes exactly. with this. Basically, because that was their whole that was their yep. whole yep. orientation was around matters of cleanness and uncleanness. Right. Nevertheless, questions of clean and unclean continue to tro- crop up later in the early church. We see, for example, mm-hmm. in, in Paul, some questions about eating certain foods. Yes. You know, we have to, I think, attribute that to some s- sort of uh, old habits die hard kind of thing. I agree. You know, I agree. There were some folks, even within the early Christian community, that could not let go of that, um, that clean and unclean way of thinking, you know, because it was such a foundation for the Judaism that had been, been around for centuries. Well, absolutely. Right. That, that, that makes sense as much as we, as, as much as we don't, we do that ourselves, right? We hang on right. to all these things. I mean, it's just part of our humanity. Um, right. we're very much shaped by, by what came before us. Um, yeah. and, and it takes, it takes decades maybe centuries, to dig ourselves out of some of those shaping assumptions. Well, I mean, we've talked about grace versus sin as sort of the starting place for understanding God and mm-hmm. ourselves. And, you know, I, I found myself, we're, we're 
500 years past the, Re- the Reformation, which was supposedly all about that. And, you know, I still am dealing with people who have a hard time understanding, you know, that, right. that it's about grace. Yeah. Oh, it's sin. very hard. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. that, that, that tradition dies hard, too. It, very hard. Yeah. Very hard. Now, all of this, I think, raises the question of Jesus' attitude towards the Torah in Mark. Now, Jesus nowhere explicitly abrogates the Torah in Mark, but he also nowhere explicitly t- states his intention to fulfill the law, mm. unlike he does in Matthew. Uh-huh. So, you know, in Mark's gospel, we have some declarations which seem to imply that the kingdom of God supersedes the law. He speaks about mm-hmm. the Son of Man as being Lord of the Sabbath. We have his statements here about foods and what was unclean or cl- right, right, clean right. or unclean. Uh, we have the statement of, of uh, in, in chapter 12 uh, about love for God and neighbor are more than all the sacrifices. And so I think, you know, it's important to see that Jesus' attitude towards the law is, is a little bit ambiguous in, in Mark's gospel because he obviously affirms things like the great commandments right. and things like that. But at the same time, he seemed to prefer, like the prophets, to emphasize the weightier matters of the law, as, as he puts it in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. And perhaps ultimately he sees the new wine of the proclamation of the kingdom as well as his own authority to command the disciples as something that may have overrided aspects of the law, like the matters regarding clean and unclean, and perhaps even the sacrifices as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I think that fits with who Mark has kind of um, uh, revealed himself to be as a writer. So yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's consistent. It's more something we would expect in Matthew's gospel, because in Matthew's yeah, gospel, you exactly. have it made more explicit. Exactly. Here, it's a little bit more implicit in some of the sayings that Jesus says, and you have to uh, kind yeah. of take, you have to kind of take a, a large look at the gospel as a whole that's, to kind yeah, of exactly. put this picture together. But I think that's what Mark is wanting us to do is to piece mm-hmm. it together and determine again, who Jesus is yeah. as we are walking through this with, with them. So I, yeah, I, I guess so. my reason for bringing this out is because I think it would be easy for us to read a lot of this through the lens of what Jesus says in Matthew. I agree. And well, we Calvin to, does. <laughs> well, we have to understand that, that right. Jesus in Mark's gospel doesn't right. make those statements. Exactly. So we have to look at it a little bit differently I agree. than we would perhaps if we were just kind of amalgamating it all together. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. Yeah. So then the lectionary passage picks up again with the conclusion to the episode where Jesus reiterates his ethical, spiritual, or moral interpretation of true cleanness and uncleanness, which is in effect really the question of personal holiness, as well as the question of of religious authority and what is really the true approach to God. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus says, it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. And I think that's important to note. It's from the heart. It's mm-hmm. not what you eat that goes into your stomach and out you know, right, through your digestive right. system. It is what comes out of your heart right. that really matters. And so he lists several of them, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly, and concludes basically all of these th- evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jesus makes it clear in this passage that the question of unclean or clean, the question of one's relationship with God, the question of holiness is one that Jesus approaches from a moral or ethical or spiritual perspective and definitely not from a ritual or ceremonial one. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this last piece takes us in and kind of says, look, this is, this is absolutely it. It's from, um, it's it, from the heart, from the heart. Exactly. Yeah. It's from the heart. So, I mean, yeah, it, it works as a nice summary. For and the, perhaps the contrast might be as opposed to from the lips. It, it, which, oh yeah. Which absolutely. Jesus, you know, quotes the passage from Isaiah. Yeah. 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 I agree. I yeah. agree. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy um, share with us how the Reformers interpreted our passage for today. So so tell us about this, Christy. Well, today I decided to look at Calvin's commentaries. And while I started with Calvin, <laughs> some of the things that he says actually um, bring us to other Reformers. So Calvin turned right to worship. And you probably are thinking, as I did, that is not where I would have gone with this mm. passage uh, at the beginning. 
but he really felt that that this is um, an issue of worship because it, it really is talking about um, how we worship as a reflection of our theology. Yeah. And indeed, is our worship focused on God and love of God, or is our f- worship focused on other things? Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, you know, when it comes to the way people practice their faith, their religion, I mean, you know, it, it, it works itself out in worship. Exactly. So his, you know, and of course, coming from the Roman Catholic tradition, he's like, there's so many things there that are, are human inventions. And people get so caught up with their genuflecting and their kneeling and um, all of the additions to the music that we've lost focus of God. And as, as Calvin points out, um, God tells us through scripture how to worship. Yeah. And so... It well, be- and you know, when you first told me that Calvin took this to worship, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but when you think about it, you know, um, uh, human traditions, te- you know, putting human traditions over God's word, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole question about the debate of authority. I mean, that's really where it comes down to is how you worship. And, and right. we still see that today in the quote-unquote worship yes, wars. Yes, I we mean, do. it's all about, it's mm-hmm. all about, you know, what is a true what is true faith? What is the true practice right. of Christianity? Right. How do we truly worship God? And, and you know, it comes exactly. down to your religious authority. So it, it makes sense that Calvin it, it went It does. Yeah. It, it ultimately does, but it, it is kind of a shock. And so he kind of goes through all of this stuff. He points out, as I, I mentioned while Alan was going through the, the, the individual verses where Calvin would identify this or that, but ultimately his con- conclusions come down to this is again, about authority. And we know in Calvinism that authority of God is number one, mm-hmm. number one in theology. And therefore, he takes us to look at worship. So I'm going to talk to you all day a little bit about worship and worship practices in the Reformation and, and some of the ways they have kind of trickled down to us today. And let me, let me toot your horn a little bit because this is really what you did your dissertation yes, in, right? Yes, yes, yeah. this really is. So I mean, you know whereof you speak. I, 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 I try to, right? So when you look at, at the Reformed tradition, um, and particularly Calvin, when, and you're looking at Scripture, the, the idea for them is, look, if it's not explicitly called for in Scripture— we aren't going to be using it in worship. Mm. Now, the Lutheran tradition would be Luther. Well, if it's not explicitly forbidden, then we can do it. <laughs> so this is why you are seeing in your Reformed tradition these very um, these very stripped to to a modern sensibility, very stripped down worship service versus a Lutheran service, which still retains um, a lot of the same elements that were in the Mass. And mm-hmm. in fact, you know. Um, Luther's first first was his 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 mass, and then he turned that to the German in Deutsche Messe. Whereas you know, so he's really saying, "I'm going to take out all the extras, but I'm going to leave the essentials there." Yeah. And Calvin's like, "No, we got to go down to what is called for in Scripture." So, so they, they go they they, they 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 re- revise worship from scratch, right? So, folks, when we think of worship, we often just think about um, the the liturgical process, but you also also have to think about where you worship and how it reflects your theology. Mm-hmm. And I work a lot with young people on look at your space and how does your space reflect your theology? Well, we know um, that if you walk, especially if you walk into an old Presbyterian church, you're going to see these white walls, often um, little decoration. Um, you're going to see a plain uh, Lord's table. There should not be anything on it, and I know half of you are cheating, but <laughs> um, yeah, there shouldn't be anything on it, or maybe that white cloth when you're serving communion that day and the communion elements ultimately. Um, but And, and uh, the baptismal font should be up front um, so that you can see again the, the, the two sacraments yes, in, in front of you um but it's very it's very simple and there shouldn't be a whole bunch of if in these old churches in particular images and distractions um and often in those first churches the pulpit's right in the middle mm. of the sa- of the chancel not on the side like we might have today but right in the middle therefore kind of heightening the authority of scripture right mm-hmm. there and the word so that's kind of what 
what you're getting. And, and think about, too, the Lord's table set out in kind of a basic table so that the whole congregation is invited in. So it's not you know, gated away. And even, even if you go into maybe a Methodist church, you even see a little gating there, mm. um, which, which, excuse me, which you do not see with, with the Protestant, uh, or with the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. It's, it's open. So mm-hmm. everyone has that similar access to the table. And so the worship is also reflecting this priesthood of all believers. Well, and you know, when you say the gate, I mean, you know, what I've seen is what I would have considered railing Mm-hmm. Right, they were rails, right, but for people to come up and kneel at to receive right. communion, right, right. But it, it does function as a kind of a it, gate. It really kind of does, yeah. and so that's the a holy, and everything else isn't. Whereas, again, in this in this um, reform tradition, it's this idea of that everyone is welcome. Everyone is is the holy isn't separate from right. the congregation. The, the, there's no sacred. There's no separation between sacred and profane. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's so. Then it's this idea of you know you're examining your heart before you take take communion. It's not some you're not being examined or or someone else handing it to you. And so yeah. it's really an interesting. As I said, what uh, what are our churches look like reflect our, our theology to some Surely. extent. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's interesting. And of course you're saying, okay, but what about music? Um, and of course in the early reformed tradition, music's gone. And then we get the emergence of the metrical Psalm tradition. And, um, if, if you have the last version of the Presbyterian hymnal, as we were just talking about, you know, it has the big Psalm section in the middle. And that really dates back to the Reformation era when they were publishing these separate Psalters and you could just go by those. And there weren't hymns in that tradition. Those hymns really emerge in the in, in, in the Presbyterian church in the 19th century yeah. um, with the second great revival, Charles Finney. And, and, and it had a lot to do with, gosh, folks are, you know, walking away and they're, they're going over there to the, to the, the songs that they like to sing. And so it really was a response to conversion. Oh, let me ask you something, because, you know, in the, in the blue Presbyterian hymnal, the Psalms are set to music. Yes. But as I, my understanding is that would not have been the case in the early days of the Reformation. Yes, well, they are pretty early on, actually. We, are they? We see those, yeah, we see the metrical psalms set to these basic hymn tunes. Old 100th, which we use for our doxology, mm-hmm. is, is the one we all know, right? Mm-hmm. Very simple, long-toned, and you were just going to do that same simple melody, no harmony, right? right. Everyone's singing in unison, and they're going to sing the words to the psalm to that, that very simple song. So think about the doxology, right? Okay, you know the hand, you know the you know the tune, but it would be this slow with psalms. Oh, wow. So very slow and methodical. So sort of you like are whole notes for each exact, each tone. exactly, yeah. and mm. so you are actually meditating on the words. Mm as you're singing this very simple mm. thing. Now, what happened is some organs were allowed in to be, because it required someone to kind of end up leading the song. Sure. So they eventually allowed organs to come in to simply accompany mm-hmm. that. And what's interesting is, while we do have the iconoclasm, particularly under, under Zwingli and in, in the early Reformation in Switzerland, where they're you know, destroying organs, Zwingli's known for that. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, well, yeah. And what's interesting about that, I did my master's thesis on Zwingli. Um, as you actually get into the documents, Zwingli did not encourage, encourage the destruction of organs. He encouraged the dismantling of ah. organs and, and, and putting them somewhere else. Zwingli was a fine, fine musician. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, wrote several songs himself. He played several instruments. He just argued it didn't belong in the worship service because it just as they thought distracted from the pure worship of god but what was interesting is it was okay to have music and sacred music outside the church and to be used in this kind of um this outside practice of faith Mm -hmm. so what an interesting space so for example in my world I will sometimes listen to, you know, the contemporary um, Christian music, 
but a lot of that's not actually written for worship. I mm-hmm. think some people probably do it, but it's actually written to be just, you know, Christ, kind of a Christian pop music. Mm-hmm. But I like it sometimes because it still has beautiful words mm-hmm. and things that are uplifting, but sure. I wouldn't use it in as worship music, right? right? So, but what's I think what's interesting about that is so some of these churches actually had organs still in them mm-hmm. or, or even built in them that weren't used for service but could be used for other things in the community. Yeah. So you might have the, the building used for some kind of a, a, a carol thing, but mm-hmm. you weren't having that in the worship itself. Yeah. Um, so kind of like an extra thing. Right. And um, But so in churches, organs being built in churches then really didn't come about till the 19th century. Right. And that's the same time period that we get kind of this these neo-gothic um churches built like fourth pres in chicago and so you're starting to get a few images and maybe Mm -hmm. some stained glass that would be absent from particularly those old churches in new england um and even even then though not all of them went with that gothic style right Mm -hmm. so that church i grew up in was the whitewashed wall looking church well the Mm -hmm. original church here was the same way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, although they did have a stained glass window over the door the only decoration in the church building here for decades was a portrait of jesus that was hung at the front yes and before that there was nothing right and there was some debate on you know the portrait of jesus and so it was ultimately decided it was okay to have a portrait of Jesus if it was Jesus in his humanity mm-hmm. and not in Jesus in his divinity. Right, so right. not Christ the King right. like you might see in a Roman Catholic tradition. So very, very interesting. Mm. And so it's not, so if you walk into like a Presbyterian church today and you see lots of images, it's either A, happened later in the tradition. So when it hasn't been such a big deal, or maybe it was a church that originated with a different tradition and people just didn't change it. Mm-hmm. It's not as big of a deal today, but um, it, it certainly was then. And I, I do think what we have seen, even from the beginning of our tradition, is some space for freedom in worship. So, um, and it's, of course, in the, in the new... Um, um, in a new book of worship, um, handbook, it's, 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 you see it more used and more, even more fluid than before, but it still has always been there to some extent, um, that, that there's, it's not always ri- as rigid as maybe, um, as maybe want, want to think it was. Well, and you know, that's the thing that I have always, uh, liked about Presbyterian worship. I think I may have mentioned before that when I was leaving the Baptist world, I, I thought about should, taking the step into the Episcopalian world, mm-hmm. I actually have a, a a good friend and a student of mine who's my age. Um, he he made that step. He's become ordained as an Episcopalian priest now. But um, I, and I, I attended some Episcopalian services and I liked their worship flow, but I didn't like the fact that the liturgy is word for word the same week after week. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I like the fact that we have the freedom in the Presbyterian worship in world to craft our own liturgy. Now, of course, mm-hmm. it it puts more work on us. Right, right, right. But but I that's part of my that's part of my ministry that I enjoy is the crafting of, right. of worship of liturgy. Exactly. And and so I like having the freedom to do that. And but there's a certain flow that is ancient, right? I mean, the flow right. of our services is ancient. Exactly. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the way in which we do it, we, we're always free to experiment with it. And I like that freedom. I, I like that as well. And I think it also reflects our theology of, of, of Christ working now, the living Christ, mm-hmm. and, and that the Holy Spirit's, you know, in and, and working among us, and, and, and so our, uh, it feels alive. Mm-hmm. And instead of just we're just saying the same words we said twenty years ago, you know. And, well, I hope so at least. You know, that's an, you know, it, maybe this is a discussion for later. But to what extent, you know, as we are creating, uh, as we're creating worship, and as we're, to what extent is the form important because that ritual is part of our identity, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I feel like that's where the early reformers missed the ball, forgetting that um, thing, music, of course, Martin Luther, you know, music is central to our learning. And yeah. to pull that out of worship, um, we're, we're really missing an opportunity to to really impress theology, to put theology in yes, your mind. Indeed. Um, I think I think people learn most of their theology through the hymns they sing. I agree. I agree. You know, one of the things that I have um, 
experienced in my transition from the Baptist tradition into the Presbyterian tradition was the singing of all verses of the hymns. <laughs> um, uh, in the Baptist world, you didn't do that. You well, usually well, you, sang, we should be Lutheran then, do all 25. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the Baptist world, you did like three, hymn, three verses of each hymn, and that was it. Um, you know, when we came back together in person after, after being shut down from COVID, um, we, I, I, I limited the hymns to like two verses mm-hmm. or maybe three if it's, a short, if it's a short hymn. And I think people actually like it better. And I didn't realize it, but I, I had been told, well, we used to do it that way here hmm. in this church. Interesting. I, I just assumed when I came here that, you know, this was a Presbyterian church. You sing all verses of the hymn. Oh. So that was something I sort of stumbled onto accidentally in this church. I had some of both. And I think, um, I think it depends on, uh, it depends on the pastor or the music person, depending on, you know, are all the verses important for the theological, mm. um, emphases of the, of the, of, of the particular service. And, um, I've seen sometimes, um, one or two cut out for that mm-hmm. reason specifically. Right. So we might right. see one, three and five or one, three and four or, or something like that. So, well, and I've, I've really liked that because there's some hymns that I haven't used because one of the verses just has a theology in it that I can't, that so I can't take endorse. it out. And so take now I can it take out. it out. You can, you can do it. Yeah. So now Luther, I have to say, did not look favorably on that. Yeah. He really wanted you to sing all, I, and I looked at hymn books. I, I had hymns that had 57 verses. <sighs> 57 verses, and Luther expected you to sing them all. <laughs> in, in, in my church, six is a lot. Oh, People it was find insane. that tedious. It's kind of a big joke, you know, with, with if anyone's Lutheran out there listening in, in, in Lutheran tradition, that, you know, trying to keep count of all the number of verses you're on, you know, which one you're on if you're the organist, trying to remember. I bet, I bet. Um, but uh, that, and of course, they're not as long as they were in Luther's day, but oh my, there, some of those people just wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, um, so very, in, very interesting time. And, uh, there was a lot of, I think this was also interesting. There was a lot of writing of hymns in the Lutheran tradition that were, you write the verses and it would say, sing to the tune of. And so you would know the tune of maybe the main hymn, right. but they would make, and we still do that today, right. but the expectation people would know that tune. And then they are, they are literally singing it because of its, because of those th- the theology that's going to pull them all the way through that. So really interesting time. You know, I, I, I took some kids to Northern Ireland on a mission trip uh, several years ago, and uh, the Presbyterian church we attended there only had the words. Yes. Oh, yes. Most of, most of the hymnals I studied were were, yeah. were music. That was my first, my first experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. We're music <laughs> hymnals. So, yeah. uh, well, we, we went on a lot of things with Calvin, and we may come back and talk – I talk i think we might talk a little bit more about worship yeah yeah okay sounds good good. thanks hey everybody we are back and as i promised we're going to talk a little bit about worship and a little bit about worship and theology in particular as it relates to this passage so alan Take it away. Yeah, well, and, you know, as I mentioned before, I think the real debate underlying the conflict between uh, the Pharisees and scribes and Jesus was the one of religious authority, and and really it's one of theology. It's one of how do you see God and how do you see, you know, how do you construe the proper means of living for God and, and honoring mm-hmm. God in your life? And you know the scribes and the Pharisees saw it by these very these many ritual practices. And again, as I said before, I mean that reflected sort of a determination on their part not to transgress the command of God, right. which right. you know you have to admire. But at the same time, then they became so all about the fence that they missed you know why what they were doing mm-hmm. in the first place, which was trying to honor God. Right. And and Jesus was calling them back to that, I think. And and um, so you know we have this we have this tension, I guess, between because because the the scribes and the Pharisees, their tradition was it, it was something of an innovation in his day, mm-hmm. but but at the same time it wasn't. Because the whole thing about clean and unclean is just written into the fabric of the Torah in Numbers and, and Leviticus. And, and, you know, you have this whole thing there about how, you know, you, you cannot 
be in God's presence if you are unclean in these various mm-hmm. ways. And it's mm-hmm. all about basically you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's what it's all about. Right, right. But, but the debate then becomes in, between Jesus and the Pharisees, how do you really honor God's holiness right. in, in one's life right. by personal holiness? Right. And Jesus argues it's about how you live. It's about mm-hmm. what comes from your heart. Right. It's about how you treat other people. It's not about your ritual observances. Yeah, yeah. And that was just totally scandalous to them. Right, right. And I think I think we see something like that in in the worship um, um, renewal, I guess you could say, or the worship conflict between between the Catholic tradition and the Reformed churches in the Reformation Absolutely. era. Absolutely, because yep. underneath that really was, you know, where does the authority lie and how do we truly honor god right in our worship and and in the catholic tradition you had all of these practices that were had built up over centuries yep and and you know i mean we know i mean in in our churches the singing of hymns is only about what a hundred and maybe 200 years old something like that right right and yet for us it's considered to be sacrosanct you know nobody would think about cutting out hymns Right. From worship, yep. you know, You're or at right. least music from worship right. now. Right, not now, uh-uh. Um, but, but, so think about hundreds of years of practices in the Catholic exactly. Church. Exactly. You know, maybe a thousand years of exactly. tradition behind what was going on in the era of the Reformation. And... Um, and, and, and the reformers saying, no, that's not what's in Scripture. You know, right. We're going to go back right. to Scripture. Well, and, well, you know, th- that's an interesting interesting point yeah going back to scripture and what does that mean and and trying to figure out what the early church practiced as well Mm -hmm. um that was important so that you know as we know they keep in the nicene and the apostles creed um as as part of their tradition but i but yeah it's 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 an interesting um an interesting concern of theirs right um how, how is god the authority in worship um when you've got this noise around you. And I think one of the important things to point out is the, uh, the Roman Catholic church is going to go through its own reformation, right? right. And the, and the, the Catholic counter reformation, usually, um, um, so sometimes it's just reflect, referred as the, the counter reformation. But if we think of it as the Catholic reformation, then we look at their own reform thing, thinking, where have we really pushed too far? Where has, um, where have we ourselves gone so far away that, that God is lost? So, you know, you kind of get a renewal um, of focus in the Roman Catholic tradition at that point as sure. well. Well, and we've seen that, you know, in our own day, you know, mm-hmm. it was a couple of, you know, with Vatican II yep. and, then, yep. and then with Pope Francis, you know, right. and, and different things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but obviously really point, important part of the, the worship tradition was, you know, and particularly for our Reformed tradition is, authority of God. And so what is God asking us to do in worship? Well, and that's really, that's really becomes the rub because that becomes then about biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that was part of what was going on, I think, in the debate between Jesus and the scribes Mm -hmm. and the Pharisees, because, you know, they're both saying essentially the same thing. And that is that we have, we honor God by keeping God's commandments. The question was, how do you do that? Right. And the Pharisees and the scribes says, well, you do that by building a fence around the law and by, by doing all these traditional practices like washing either up to your elbows or whatever that, whatever that phrase essentially originally meant. Yes. Yes. And Jesus said, no, you know, it's not about that. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the reality is, is that Jesus isn't being this the grand innovator, um, because the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, right, they did the same thing. Exactly. You know, yeah, essentially, it, it, absolutely. Essentially, yeah. the prophets, you know, came to the people and they said, you know, you think that because you have this temple here and because you go through the motions of your worship, that God is with you and that right. no enemy can come in and 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 conquer Jerusalem. And of course, then it happens, right? Right. And there's and but but the prophets have been saying all along. I mean, you can't just go in and go through the motions of right. worship right. and then walk out and think, well, I can exactly. live however I want to. It's about your 
your heart. It's about mm-hmm. obedience. And I mean, obviously, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah in this passage. So it's, well, a, it's an interesting thing. By the way, I do want to correct myself. I, in a recent podcast, I said that the only other place that Jesus quoted scripture was was when he was he when he was cleansing the temple. This is obviously another place where Jesus. Oh, quoted scripture. okay. <laughs> Correction made. Yeah. Um, I, interesting. I I worry about you know this reform tradition because I think the focus is supposed to be there, but how often do um, even even a little bit later in Calv- early in Calvinism, do we see we're so obsessed with what we shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. that all of a sudden the focus is still on the on the doing instead of on God? Mm-hmm. You know, oh my gosh, they shouldn't be doing that. Oh, that's wrong. And and that actually um, was kind of an unfortunate space. And and, and they part of the reforming too is to make sure that they don't look anything like the Roman Catholic right. Church before. Now Zwingli is the one I think that got it more than ever, anyone else. Uh, because Zwingli said, look, we have these people that have been worshiping this way and taught this way for all these years. To make abrupt changes in how they worship doesn't necessarily help them focus on God. We have to teach them. We have to make do this slowly so that they will begin to understand and 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 f- and, and feel God's presence in in this new space, but not to cut it off. And so it's kind of like involving them in that whole transition as they, as the theology is, as they're trying to gain this new theology. Now, interestingly um, enough is it's Zwingli arguing with, with the Zurich city council mm. on this and the city council's pushing back. So what Zwingli says and what actually happens in Zurich is not necessarily the same, but that was Zwingli's point. You need to slow down. This needs to happen so that people are engaged and understand that all their stuff's not being taken away um, um, because they're bad worshipers or something, but but because we want to f- f- focus on God yeah. and we want to focus on the Word and that th- and help them learn to focus that right. way. Yeah. Well, and I, I think about that. I mean, that's 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 kind of I think the goal of every pastor who's crafting liturgy in the Presbyterian world today. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have the worship wars of yes, our day, we do. right? Mm-hmm. And 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 yet, I think the real issue is. How do you engage people mm-hmm. in worship? How right. do you make worship meaningful? And you know, for some people, what I what I hear, you know, in my context is we want to sing our old favorite hymns. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up singing those hymns, right? And I'm just like anybody else. When we sing those old favorite hymns, it's easy for me to just kind of slip my mental and my my mental gear and my heart gear into neutral, and I might be thinking about what am I going to do this afternoon after I get home, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and but we love those hymns because we know them so well. Right. So in my world, what I do is I try to find hymns that are set to the old tunes that have different words. Right. And I get some pushback on that, but you know, I oh. think I think you know. But there's some new words out there that make us push us forward with some newer theology, and that's yes. really our focus. You know, right. supposed to be right, right. On, on on what? Well, we're and it's about it's about you know reflecting on God. Exactly. It's not about reflecting on right. what am I going to do this afternoon, right? Right. But uh, interestingly enough, I think on the other side of that, there's a lot of churches out there, not not um, non-denoms usually where it's a performance, it's a band performance, and there's really little, in, but I feel God when I'm there. I'm like, but are you, what, what are, are you, are, are you hearing the word of God? Or is it just are you a hearing? feeling, it's just, it's a feel yeah. good thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it is to some extent, the emotional uh, mm-hmm. aspect of it. Um, and and I'll, I'll admit, you know, some of our old standard hymns aren't that emotive you know, in the way they are structured. They're much more uh, cognitive, you know. Right. They're much more uh, about the content. Right. And so, I, you know, we have place, we have responses in our worship, and I'm trying to work some newer material into the responses oh, nice. that might have some more of an emotive content mm-hmm. to it. Because I think I think there's a place for that in worship. I don't want to sit there and do that for, for 20 or 30 minutes. Right. But I think there's a place for that. Uh, I, 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 interestingly enough, I wonder... I think it's just as easily it's just as easy to get into a rote 
with a praise service as it yes, is with a traditional is. hymn service. Uh, yes, it you know, is. You get into a pattern of singing the same hymns, and you just and again you kind of go into neutral and and exactly. It's not about the worship of God. It's just about okay, this is my tradition, and this is where I feel comfortable, and this is mm-hmm. where I what I what I where I feel safe, and and this is just this is my community, and and you know there's that emotional content mm-hmm. to it. But it's more of um, you know what we're doing, and it's not so much about God. And again, right, that's, we miss that's the point. a good point. When our worship it's more becomes, about what we're doing yeah. rather than God. It's how I feel about what I'm doing, mm-hmm. not about am I really focused on God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it really kind of comes back to the the um, authority of tradition. We all have a tradition that 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 defines us Mm -hmm. and and we use it to define ourselves and our again i think i come back to this i think really our worship tradition is as much about how we identify ourselves and about sort of a sense of security in something that's stable and something that we know and it's something that's not going to change and something that's predictable and, 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 you know, we know anytime you threaten someone's identity with, with a new idea or with, yep. with a theology yep. that's outside of what they were, were, were taught as yes, a child, they, exactly. they can really react to that. And I think that's really where we're, what, what happens in worship is it's about that, that sort of the power of that tradition. People, people wrap their identity up in their tradition, whether it be, their their views on America, or whether it be their views on God, yes, or yes, whether it yes. be their views on the Bible, yes. or whether it be be their views on worship and 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 singing, you know, and yes. and if you if you dare to mess with that, you know, Katie bar the door. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking about all of this conversation, and and focusing on God, and it reminded me of in our glory to God as well as our um, Book of Common Worship the prayers that prepare us for worship, Mm -hmm. Uh, centering us as as pastors, centering uh, the people leading worship so that when we're up there leading worship, that we are indeed um, in the mindset that, that we are indeed worshiping God. And um, I think that, I think we overlook that a lot, but I think um, maybe that's, that's a reminder Sure. But I agree. I mean, I think with, with, with the whole debate from this passage today is about how do you honor God? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the issue. I don't know that we're always going to agree on everything, but I think is if we're, if we're, if we're really honestly, sincerely trying to honor God with our worship, yeah. um, I think, I think that's the point. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, right, thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.